All right. Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Eric Bordenkircher, a research fellow at UCLA, join us to discuss Obama 2.0 or Biden 1.0 in the Middle East. Dr. Bordenkircher will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Eric Bordenkircher. Thank you, Stacey. And uh, I'd like to thank the Middle East Forum for allowing me the opportunity to speak and um, build upon the article that I submitted uh, to them through the Middle East Quarterly. The question of, or the topic and question of uh, today's uh, discussion is Obama 2.0 or Biden 1.0. I think the simple answer, or brief answer to that is you could say that there is hybridization. You could maybe say, we could say O'Biden or kind of this 1.5, this uh, middle ground. And when I express this idea, um, I don't think it's for the best. I actually think it's for the worst. So over the next, I guess, 15 minutes here, I'd like to maybe explain why I believe that. So I'm going to look at a couple different uh, or answer a couple different questions. Uh, why this comparison between uh, Obama and, and Biden? Then uh, explain a little about what uh, President Biden believes in general and more specifically in regards to his policy towards the Middle East. Then I'd like to uh, analyze that and uh, bring up some issues, bring up some problems with that policy. And then at the end, uh, very briefly, maybe provide some alternative policy along the lines of if I was on the uh, Biden National Security Council, this is how I would approach uh, the region. So why this comparison? Well, there's some obvious reasons. And then I think some reasons that, or at least one reason that kind of goes under the radar. The obvious reason is Biden has hired a lot of uh, former uh, Obama advisors, Jake Sullivan, uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, Jeffrey Prescott, uh, Eli Ratner, Colin Cowell, and some others. And these individuals, after leaving the White House in 2016, 2017, have maintained a lot of the ideas that they uh, practiced or tried to employ in the Obama administration. And then I think uh, another idea here that sometimes uh, goes under the radar, particularly within uh, certain areas um, and ha having uh, lived in Santa Monica and, and on the west side of LA, there's a bubble and there's a kind of a belief out there uh, that uh, you know the Obama administration, Obama was the golden child and that his policies worked and that they were good. And uh, you know, being exposed to this and living in that bubble uh, made me uh, question that and as the academic uh, dig into it. And I think that it's quite revealing and that the Obama administration was not particularly uh, successful in the region. Um, they made a lot of mistakes. And I would even go to the point of saying that some of those mistakes, when you compare it to the Bush administration, exceeded it. And, and in some ways, it, you know, was it wasn't as bad, but in other ways, I think it was worse. And one of, I think, one of the uh, significant examples is the you know, spectacular disaster in, in Libya. So we have this kind of comparison. And I think also too, when we, when we begin to look at uh, Biden's ideas and what he says, 
they are very similar to what President Obama, or former President Obama expressed in 2008 and often throughout his uh, presidency. So in a general sense, the uh, Biden administration promotes these ideas and you can find them in the Democratic Party platform and then in various speeches and articles that Biden has written. There's an emphasis on democracy, there's an emphasis on human rights, there's an emphasis on alliances, and there's an emphasis on institutions. And obviously this is kind of a pushback against uh, the Trump administration, which wasn't particularly interested in democracy, didn't really pursue human rights uh, abuses in the Middle East. Um, uh, you know, this Trump uh, America first idea uh, was promoted a lot and uh, Trump didn't necessarily always uh, uh, work with the institutions. So the Biden administration has pushed back and promoted these ideas. Now, there's nothing wrong with these ideas and I'm not necessarily condemning them, but I think the issue that we need to, to take into account or at least think about is that these ideas don't resonate very well in the Middle East. It is not a very democratic area. Uh, Israel and Turkey are probably the only two countries that could be considered democracies and there would be a lot of criticism uh, in democratic circles to their uh, <clears throat> uh, handling of some of their minority communities, Palestinians, obviously, and the Kurds. Uh, human rights is not a, uh, a particularly uh, practiced or promoted idea in the region. You have human rights abuses basically in almost every country in the region. It's hard to find one that doesn't have issues or there, at least there's criticism in that regard. Um, alliances are often criticized due to the fact that most people say, well, you, you know, we don't have anything in common with these countries. Why should we be their allies? And then three institutions have fallen flat in this area, whether it be, like I mentioned earlier, we could talk about the NATO intervention was a disaster. And then you can look at the UN and its uh, implementation of resolutions in Lebanon have largely been ignored. And, you know, regional institutions like the Arab League appears to be very powerless and meaningless, and the GCC often seems to be run by the Saudis, and it doesn't necessarily appear to be kind of a group uh, effort there. So these ideas of democracy, human rights, alliances, and institutions uh, don't resonate very well. And what the Biden administration has tried to do is, instead of focusing on these ideas, highlights kind of these kind of going back to uh, the status quo. He, Biden uses a lot of this prefix re, rebalance, reestablish, reinvigorate. Um, uh, uh, um, can't think of the others off the top of my head here, but he appears to want to go back in time, back to when it was quote unquote better uh, is the belief. And by doing this, one of the examples is uh, kind of the re-entering of the JCPOA. And I think the problem with uh, a lot of the policies that the Biden administration seeks to employ in the region is that policies don't go together. There's kind of this, they're incongruent uh, and they are unable to kind of, uh, either they don't want to or unwilling or unable to kind of see the linkage between policies or their harm, uh, harmful effects. 
And I think this creates a rather short-sighted policy. It creates a harmful policy. And I think ultimately it undermines and hurts US interests uh, in the region. Now, focusing on this issue of linkages, we'll look at the JCPOA. So Obama's kind of central policy in the region is to re-enter this agreement. He sees it as representing a lot of the ideas that he wants to promote in his, in his administration, multilateralism, work with our allies, uh, um, diplomacy uh, along, those, along those lines. But the problem with, uh, with re-entering the JCPOA is that he uh, advocates other policies that ultimately will harm that re-entrance or maintain that agreement. So for example, if you've been following the news here, just literally yesterday, one of the policies that Biden has promoted and appears to be employing is terminating this US involvement uh, with the Saudis in Yemen. Now, the idea of linkage here, or the inability to kind of see the linkage between uh, issues is that uh, one of the reasons, or one of the, maybe you could say, fundamental obstacles that the Obama administration tried to overcome was that the Gulf partners in, uh, in the Middle East were very wary of this JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement. And Obama had to make some promises. He had to make some pledges. And one of the promises that he made was that he would provide uh, defense. He would provide support. Uh, he wanted to make sure that our allies did not feel threatened. And uh, he, he did this by providing military arms, which the Biden administration has said that they want to cut uh, and restrict which then exposes and makes these uh, allies of ours feel uh, more vulnerable and more threatened by uh, the Iranian presence and the growth of the Iranian uh, nuclear um, program. And then another issue that Obama chose to support was this uh, uh, Saudi intervention in Yemen. And the Saudis have gone in there concerned about the instability in the country, but also concerned about the Houthis who operate as a quote-unquote proxy of Iran, who you know, exists right along the Saudi uh, border. So there is a threat there, or at least a perceived threat, and uh, Obama tried to accommodate them. Now, the Biden administration has come in, and as we've seen, said, hey, we're going to be uh, removing ourselves from this conflict. We're not going to support it. We're going to start restricting uh, measures uh, in regards to military weapons. And I think this creates a, uh, a sort of uh, uncomfortability within our allies in the region. And the problem with this uh, uh, attitude or this approach is that the Biden administration needs these allies, needs these allies to make sure that the JCPOA, if they're able to re-enter it, uh, is able to carry forth. It needs these allies in order to, you know, their cooperation uh, on issues of terrorism. Uh, on other issues of security. So for example, Biden wants to reconnect uh, the Gulf to Iraq. Now, if the United States is uh, pulling back on its military support, pulling back on Yemen, uh, I would believe that the Saudis and some of the other countries in the Gulf would be a little more uh, unwilling to cooperate with the 
Biden administration on these issues. And this goes even further. Uh, it goes even further in regards to human rights and uh, the Biden administration wanting to kind of, kind of promote human rights in the region. And I think this is a problematic approach because it requires substantial change within these countries, substantial change that will not occur in the short term. Uh, can only occur in the long term. And I think in the short term, it only creates instability. So I think one of the fundamental uh, problems with this uh, policy that the Biden administration is promoting, and a lot of the same ideas were promoted by the Obama administration. The Obama administration, like I said earlier, was not successful. Uh, was not successful in maintaining those relations. The Obama administration damaged those relations with our allies these allies that we need in order to maintain security, we need in order to uh, ha have cooperation on other issues. And, and it appears that the uh, Obama, uh, or sorry, the Biden administration is going to continue uh, that pursuit. And as I've kind of demonstrated here, it's gonna even go further, restrict weapons uh, and uh, intervention in Yemen. So as I'm coming up here on my deadline with my presentation, uh, one of the things that I would like to maybe provide as a critique or an alternative policy, since we're still uh, early in the Biden administration, and in all due respect, uh, the jury is still out and we need to see how things evolve here. But if, if I was providing policy advice, uh, there would be a couple issues that I would focus on. I would look at uh, prioritizing our interests in the region, uh, promoting a regional policy, and working from positions of strength. So when we talk about prioritizing interests, I think probably one of the fundamental issues, the most important issue for us, for our security and for the security of the region is to uh, re-enter this JCPOA. Obviously, I don't think the way the agreement was made is ideal. It needs to be renegotiated, it needs to be better. Uh, um, we need uh, uh, to be able to also uh, control, or I should say, cr um, critique Iranian behavior outside of the nuclear deal. But I think this nuclear issue, particularly nuclear proliferation, is the most prominent, the most important, and the most urgent issue. And I think that prioritizes that. And by utilizing or trying to implement these other policies that you know make us look good in regards to human rights, democracy, et cetera, can ultimately have negative repercussions and can undermine, I think, this much more urgent, much more uh, significant, much more important issue. Uh, promoting a regional policy, I think we want to not focus on a, a country by country policy. I think these, these are largely uh, unsuccessful. I think what is best to do is to contain these conflicts and allow our allies to address them instead of us. And then work from positions of strength. We have a lot of leverage still in regards to uh, the Iranian agreement, or sorry, the JCPOA and getting the Iranians back on board. Use that leverage to get more out of the Iranians. And um, yeah, let me, since we're um, out of time here, I will uh, leave it at that and I'll be happy to take uh, questions. All right, thank you so much. Um, so you briefly touched on the, the Yemen uh, policy change. So one of the questions in is, how does the recently changed Biden policy towards Yemen factor into the overall Middle East posture? The overall Middle East posture for the United States? Yes. 
I think it complicates relations with the Saudis. Uh, we need the Saudis on board uh, in order for the JCPOA to happen. Uh, we need their cooperation in regards to nuclear issues and that there isn't a proliferation. And I think this change in Yemen threatens that. Now, I guess we have to wait and see how this plays out. And then there's also some issues that I think will probably be revealed over time. I think the comment from the Biden administration was to end all offensive uh, support. Now, what does that uh, entail exactly? I don't, I don't know, um, but we'll have to wait and see. But my initial uh, belief or response to that is that it, it complicates uh, our relations with the Saudis. So what exactly is the leverage that the U.S. would have if we were, we were to rejoin the JCPOA? I think the leverage right now is that uh, the, uh, I mean, things are changing as we speak here, but the uh, sanctions and the pressures that the United States put on Iran um, has put Iran in a very vulnerable situation. Economically, uh, it, it, has, it has, hurt the, has hurt the country. And I think you maintain that leverage until we get a uh, agreement that people can live with. I think one of the things that often gets overlooked is that uh, the JCPA was never passed by Congress. It's only, it was only an executive order. So there was not support from that, for that agreement on both sides of Congress or both sides of the aisle. And I think in order to get that support, the agreement needs to be stronger. It needs to uh, expect more compliance from the Iranians, more uh, investigations. My understanding through colleagues of mine is that uh, more can be done or to investigate uh, Iranian actions in regards to its uh, nuclear program. Thank you. So a follow-up question there. What are the key... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. What are the key terms that you would add to a new agreement with Iran regarding the, what are the key terms? I think the, the, I think the fundamental term is uh, its behavior in the region. I mean, we look at it in Lebanon, we look at it in uh, Syria, we look at it in Yemen, we look at it in Iraq. Uh, we have these organizations that uh, look to Iran for guidance. These organizations act with impunity. We saw this yesterday with the assassination of, um, of, of um, forgetting his name here off the top of my head here, um, the Shia civil society individual was, was assassinated. The likelihood that uh, the person who committed that crime will be brought to justice is unlikely. And you know these kind of uh, uh, actions are not the exception. They're not the norms. We see this behavior going on in, in Iraq on a regular basis. And the, the positions and the authority of these groups seem to grow stronger by the day and allow Iran to ensconce itself in these countries or at least have leverage or have influence on the outcomes in these countries. And I think, and in a lot of ways, I think it's too late for uh, Lebanon. I think it is too late for Syria and it's, it's looking too late for Iraq at this stage of the game. Well, that was actually the next question we have is how do you see the Biden administration policies develop vis-a-vis -vis Lebanon, Hezbollah, and Syria? Well, the Biden administration in 
or Biden administration, Democratic uh, Party platform expressed support for the quote unquote people of Lebanon. So my understanding of that is that they'll try to go around the Lebanese government for obvious reasons. And in a lot of ways, I don't blame them because the Lebanese government has repeatedly demonstrated that it's, it's incompetent. Uh, and also the other fact is that, you know, the prominence of Hezbollah in the Lebanese government is, is growing. Its incompetency is, is incredibly demonstrated by the port blast in, in the city of Beirut back in August and the implosion of the uh, Lebanese economy. So who in their right mind would want to work through the Lebanese gover government in order to help you know, resurrect Lebanon? So I think the, the Biden administration will go around the Lebanese, gover Lebanese government, work through NGOs uh, or non-state actors. And in this way, it's probably going to be able to uh, promote agendas or ideas here uh, that it wants to, human rights issues, equality issues that plays a prominent role in the Biden administration. In regards to Syria, uh, and this is another kind of, I don't have enough time to talk about it, but the relationship of the American government, starting with the Obama administration, extending to the Trump administration to a certain, a certain degree, and I think it will be somewhat reinforced with the Biden administration is this relationship with the YPG uh, in Northeast uh, Syria. And this is problematic because Turkey believes that um, the YPG has connections to the PKK, another Kurdish group that it used as a terrorist organization. And ultimately at the end of the day, kind of like what we see with Yemen uh, and the Houthis, the Turks believe that the YPG pre uh, presents or in the future will present kind of a security uh, a threat to them. And therefore, kind of like, well, why is the United States supporting this group? Now, I think the United States supporting this group, or the Biden administration supporting this group, is because it wants its finger in a solution to the Syrian conflict, a solution that they believe will be, you know, quote unquote inclusive, quote unquote democratic. I don't think that solution is 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 likely, but I think this is the. Uh, um, beliefs and the objectives of the Biden administration, at least in the short term, I think they're going to pursue them. Uh, I don't see a whole lot maybe changing there in, in the short term, but uh, I think this is what they would like to see and what would like to happen. So do you see Biden setting and keeping a red line with Iran nuclear development and crossing it would uh, lead to military action? I don't know. I do wonder if they are, I mean, this is, this is the thing with the Biden administration. Re-entering this JCPOA is their foremost, their prominent, their central policy for the Middle East. And uh, Obama, or sorry, Biden's advisors have promoted this uh, policy and I think they want it to, uh, they, they want this, this uh, or this uh, agreement resurrected. And therefore, I think they're going to do everything in order to realize that. Because it, I think at a fundamental level, if they cannot do that, then it tells them, or and it kind of tells the world that then this multilateralism, uh, this diplomatic uh, um, belief or this diplomatic policy is not successful. And then it makes, you know, provides questions for the overall policy of the 
administration. So my thinking here is that they're going to do whatever it takes in order to re-enter it. Um, I, I wonder if the narrative in regards to the agreement and why it fell apart and why we need it may change and that the emphasis will be a little more on preventing this nuclear program uh, from developing further versus kind of the threat that Iran poses to the region and poses to our allies. Uh, but you know, I think it's yet to be yet yet to be determined what how this will play out. Thank you. Going back to Obama real quick. Uh, did Obama's 2011 speech in Cairo set off the Arab Spring? I I don't think one speech like that sets off uh, off a uh, event that engulfs a significant part of the region. Um, I think the Obama speech in Cairo can be interpreted as kind of a disappointment to a lot of these people who went out onto the street expecting uh, support uh, from the uh, Obama administration. Uh, the Obama response to the Arab uh, Spring was rather mixed. Uh, we see them supporting uh, the removal of Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, they supported the overthrow of um, Gaddafi in Libya. But they did not, uh, you know, take as an aggressive stance in regards to Bahrain, and was somewhat ambivalent in regards to Syria. Um, I think probably from a kind of just uh, from the general population, I would I would think that there's probably a disappointment uh, that Obama maybe didn't put his foot down uh, uh, harder or stronger or longer. But I think at the end of the day here, and this kind of comes back to some of the kind of policy ideas that I had here is that um, I think these changes, these democratic changes, and I don't want to um, say that, you know, condemn any, or sorry, yeah, condemn any support for democratic change, but this democratic change is quite tumultuous. It's quite violent and the end game is quite uncertain. And it, produces a lot of security concerns. You can see this in, in Libya, for example. And um, in the short term, particularly until maybe some of these other issues are out of the way in regards to this issue of nuclear proliferation, I think democratic promotion should be kind of a secondary or third tier issue and should not be uh, quite prominent because I just don't see uh, um, the situations in any of these countries um, producing ideal outcomes. I mean, look, 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 protests in Iraq have stalled, protests in Algeria have stalled, protests in uh, Lebanon have stalled. We have still a civil war in uh, Syria. We still have a civil war, you know, uh, and a proxy war in Libya, and we still have a civil war proxy war in Yemen. So the outcomes are not great. And the situation in Tunisia, the one country that you could say has a somewhat Kind of positive, uh, a somewhat a positive outcome is, you know, still quite precarious, and there's protests going on there on a daily basis in regards to the economy and so forth. So um, I think probably uh, Obama's uh, speech there um, got people excited and then ultimately let people down. Probably promised too much. But that was, you know, Obama trying to make this kind of contrast with Bush. You know, 
re-establish our relations, reset our relations with the, with the Middle East, with the Arab, with the Muslim world. And this is what uh, he, you know, this is the course he, he took, but, you know, demonstrated by history, he wasn't willing to maintain that course or maintain that course all the time. So what, what can be done to help Biden be Biden, you know, going forward? And uh, do you see any people being brought into the administration who could turn Biden's Mideast policy away from Obama's? Uh, uh, the current trajectory, no. I mean, like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the talk, he's surrounding himself with a lot of former Obama advisors. Uh, and these are people that have promoted uh, Obama's ideas uh, when they were out of office throughout the Trump administration. Um, so unless, you know, there is uh, kind of a, a shock to the reality, I think at least in the short term here over the next year or two, uh, I don't see that change. I think one thing we want to keep in mind here, and I think this is another kind of critique and criticism of the Obama administration, unlike the Bush administration, where the Obama administration kind of didn't reevaluate its policy after four years. It kind of tried to at least continue and uphold these beliefs, whereas I think there is a little more humility within the Bush administration to kind of uh, admit defeat and admit the fact that, hey, we didn't do this quite right and pull back from a lot of these ideas. So I don't know if that mentality, or at least appears like within these first few weeks, is, is kind of being maintained that was promoted in, in the Obama administration. So will the appointment of individuals like Batar and uh, Mallory inhibit Israelis from sharing vital intelligence regarding Iran with the US national security agencies? I would hope not. Um, I mean, I would hope that the relationship between the United States and Israel is, is a strong relationship. Obviously, kind of like with, with you know, the uncertainty with Saudi Arabia, uh, there, you know, they could be uh, a little more uh, ambivalent on, on things uh, because of the willingness of the Biden administration to re-enter this Iran deal, which the Israelis and particularly Netanyahu uh, abhor. Um, but for the sake of uh, you know um, intelligence and state for security, yes, I hope that is the case. But I don't know these individuals on a you know personal level to be able to kind of give any insight into those kind of dynamics. Understood. Well, thank you so much. For any of our viewers that didn't get a chance to read uh, Dr. Gordon Kircher's article, you can find it in the reminder emails as well as going to www.meforum.org and typing in Dr. Gordon Kircher's name into our search bar and it'll pop right up. Uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Borden Kircher, for taking time Thank to speak you. with us today. Thank you. For, for our viewers, please be on the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, thank you. Thank you again for this opportunity. Of course. Thank you. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks again. Bye.